Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The utmost good faith shall always be observed towards the Indians. Their lands and property shall never be taken from them without their consent. And in their property, rights, and liberty... They never shall be invaded or disturbed, unless in just and lawful wars authorized by Congress. But laws founded in justice and humanity shall from time to time be made, for preventing wrongs being done to them, and for preserving peace and friendship with them. The Northwest Ordinance, 1787. Despite this promise of good faith from the government of the United States, the relations between the U.S. and the indigenous peoples of the Americas would prove to be a quite turbulent one and the government would, over time, prove to be not so trustworthy of a partner, much to the detriment of the native nations, as we shall explore in more depth in this episode of The Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Before we dive in, a couple of announcements. First, I wanted to thank Sean Warswick of the American History Podcast for providing the intro quote for this episode. Sean is in the third season of his podcast, and is currently working on a series about the Progressive Era and the Great Depression. His episodes are always chock full of information about various points of American history. So once you're done with this episode, either go to the American History Podcast, that's all one word, dot com, or search for the American History Podcast anywhere fine podcasts can be found to give it a listen. Second, as I'm working on this episode, the world is currently dealing with the COVID-19 epidemic. As an epidemic that went through the Americas is discussed in this episode, I want to give everyone a heads up so that if you're not in a space where you can listen to that content, you can go ahead and turn off this episode as I want to be mindful of your mental and emotional well-being. I want this podcast to be an informative experience in a safe environment, so I completely understand if this is a subject that you need to wait until another time to approach. That said, let's proceed forward. I will go ahead and confess that I am not as well-versed on the history of the indigenous peoples of North America as I am on other subjects. This has been something that I have attempted to improve on the last few years since I started the Harrison podcast. While I believe that I have learned much since, there is still much left to learn. However, I believe it important to address the status of native peoples up to the time of the Louisiana Purchase as they have been for so long left out of the story or been portrayed as side characters in the narrative of the early republic. One of my major aims with this podcast is to highlight individuals and events that may not be quite as well-known, but did play an important role in each presidency. And as circumstances for Native peoples in North America is changed forever in the aftermath of the Louisiana Purchase, this seemed like a good time to focus in on their history. That being said, there is no way in a 30-40 minute episode to extensively cover the history of the indigenous peoples of North America. That would be another podcast in and of itself. There are important points to know in terms of understanding U.S. presidential history, including some that have not been covered quite so extensively in the past, in the context of presidential history. But I think it important to state that it is through this lens that I am looking at the material covered in this episode. Without further ado, 
let's go ahead and dive in. No doubt a number of you have heard the theory that the humans who came to populate the Americas came over the land bridge that was where the Bering Strait is now, tens of thousands of years ago. Undisputed archaeological evidence proves that there were humans inhabiting the Clovis site in modern-day New Mexico around 11,000 years ago. But more recent evidence seems to indicate human habitation in the Americas much earlier, and that if humans, in fact, did migrate to the Western Hemisphere from Asia, there may have been multiple migrations, both by land and water, over time. Suffice it to say that humans have inhabited the Americas for a long time. Though few cultures in the Western Hemisphere prior to European contact in the late 15th, early 16th century left written records that have survived to the present day, we still have multiple ways that we are learning about the history of those cultures, including archaeology, linguistic studies, genetic data, and oral traditions. Though relegated to a limited role in the understanding and approach of Western scholars for a good while, more recent approaches to studying the culture and history of North American indigenous peoples are appreciating the respective oral traditions as being a treasure trove of knowledge about the histories and societies from which they originated and are respecting the approach taken by the indigenous cultures themselves to understanding their respective past. As noted by James Wilson, quote, Within most Native American cultures, there is no clear distinction between story and history. Both are part of the oral tradition, the rich profusion of anecdotes and legends by which each tribe and nation explains the creation of the world and its own origins and experience. For our understanding of the nations and peoples of the Western Hemisphere, so too must we understand that here too, as in other parts of the globe such as Africa, Asia, and Europe, there were similar developments happening around the same time. Evidence has been found that, around 8500 BCE, humans in various parts of the earth began to cultivate plants for use as food. This quote-unquote domestication of plants is what we would refer to as agriculture, and we have evidence of it happening in seven locations around the world at that point in history. Three of those locations were in the Western Hemisphere, in what we now know of as the Valley of Mexico, the South Central Andes Mountains, and in Eastern North America. If you're like me and were brought up in the Western tradition, then you've likely heard of the other locations. Sub-Saharan Africa, the Nile and Tigris and Euphrates river systems, the Yellow River in what is now northern China, and the Yangtze River in what is now southern China. What made the development in the Americas different, however, was that, while the evolving cultures in the other locations had a simultaneous domestication of animals, in the Americas, the focus was more on what is better described as, quote-unquote, game management. Rather than establishing contained environments, the animals on which these societies drew from as resources were still wildlife, but there was a degree of management put into place to control the supply and access. This approach, however, meant that the Americas would see less of the concentration of peoples in urban locations than in other parts of the globe, though these too were not completely unknown in the hemisphere. The lack of domestication of animals in the Americas is also cited as a possible cause for the low immunity rates of the indigenous peoples. As described by Anton Truer, quote, The peoples of the Middle East and Europe domesticated sheep, pigs, and chickens, and their sustained daily exposure to the animal population, along with crowded and usually unsanitary city conditions, exposed them to many diseases. We'll come back to this in a bit. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The cultures of the people in what we now know of as the United States developed in many different ways based on the lands which they inhabited. From highly sophisticated agricultural systems of crop rotation in the Northeast, to cultures that depended on fishing, to more nomadic peoples who followed migrating animals, the variety of ways of life abounded in North America over the centuries. Again from Truer, quote, Controlled burning extended the range of the buffalo all the way to New Jersey. Great mound-building civilizations built earthen pyramids still standing today at Cahokia and other places. At Chaco Canyon, nine miles of structures align in perfect symmetry, built by people who had no wheel or transit, but amassed a highly developed knowledge of astronomy, solar cycles, weather, and earth movements through the seasons. This was far from a virgin land prior to contact with Europeans. There were very rich and developed civilizations in place when Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Contact with Europeans, however, decimated indigenous cultures in the Americas. Contact meant that the diseases to which the Europeans had developed immunities, but that were still lingering in their bodies, were spread into populations which had no immunities. All of the diseases. At once. From Truer, quote, As a result, in most areas, around 95% of the tribal population died during the early contact period. The devastation that occurred in the Americas after contact with Europeans spread like wildfire across the hemisphere, leading to some areas being completely devoid of humans when Europeans landed, and thus leading to the quote-unquote virgin land myth. Communities were wiped out. Existing infrastructures collapsed. It was truly a doomsday scenario, a real-life dystopia. Worse, the Europeans didn't just come to say hi. They came with aims to take resources and to establish settlements. Of those who survived the epidemic, some indigenous peoples would offer resistance, but given their weakened state, there was only so much resistance that was possible. At the time European settlers began to establish themselves on the east coast of North America, What we now know of as the Northeast and the Midwest was primarily populated by individuals from two major language groups, Algic and Iroquoian, while what we now know of as the Mid-Atlantic also had speakers from the Suan Catawba language family in the mix. What's now known as the Southeast was a bit more diverse, with peoples of the Muscogean language family predominant in modern-day Alabama, East Mississippi, West Georgia, and East Tennessee. The Timucua spanned what is now South Georgia and Northeast Florida, while the Calusa could be found in Southwest Florida. Modern-day West Mississippi was the home of the Tunica, while peoples in the Suan Catawba language family lived in what's now West Tennessee, Arkansas, and along the Mississippi Gulf Coast. The Mississippi River Delta and Atchafalaya Basin provided a home for the Chittimacha. In all of these regions, though peoples may have shared a language family, Just as in other cultures around the world, it did not necessarily mean that they got along or shared any kind of political ties. Beyond just conflicts between European settlers and indigenous peoples, 
Native nations would find themselves at war with one another, sometimes spurred on by the Europeans, other times finding themselves at odds over resources or territory. For those who did fight the new settlers in what would become the eastern seaboard of the United States, they found that these, quote, Anglo settlers organized irregular units to brutally attack and destroy unarmed indigenous women, children, and old people during unlimited violence in unrelenting attacks. As noted by historian Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, quote, The chief characteristic of irregular warfare is that of the extreme violence against civilians. In this case, the tendency to seek the utter annihilation of the indigenous population. Other threats from the Europeans included the loss of land and trade routes that were key to the sustainability of the indigenous nations, the introduction of alcohol, which led to rampant and socially destructive alcoholism, and the enslavement of native peoples. Though the enslavement of indigenous peoples never reached the scale of that of imported Africans, there were still some enslaved native peoples in British North America in the late colonial period and South Carolina was noted for being prominent in the slave trade of indigenous peoples. Of the enslaved population of around 4,300 in South Carolina around the turn of the 18th century, a third of those enslaved were native peoples. As more settlers came, more land was taken, and more indigenous peoples were displaced. Again, from Dunbar-Ortiz, by the latter half of the 17th century, quote, The few indigenous families that remained in eastern Virginia were under the absolute dominance of the English. Historian John Grenier wrote that, quote, The English would tolerate Indians within and near their settlements, provided they essentially neither saw nor heard them. Truer notes that more peoples in what we now know of as the Northeast resisted European settlement, while the peoples of the Southeast tried to be more accommodating. Though it should be noted that, at times, Even those nations engaged in conflict against the settlers, as illustrated by what was dubbed the Tidewater War in Virginia in the 1640s and the Yamasee War in South Carolina in the second decade of the 1700s. The close-knit nature of clan systems in many of the cultures of the Northeast meant that they were more persistent in retaining their traditional cultures in the face of pressures to assimilate from Europeans. In the Southeast, however, there were the quote-unquote Five Civilized Tribes, a name given by Europeans to the peoples of the Cherokee, Chickasaw, Choctaw, Muskogee, and Seminole, due to the willingness of many of them to, quote, adopt European clothes, farming tools, and housing. Their better relationships with Europeans at times resulted in even greater distress. Southern Native nations, because of the aid provided to European powers in the North American theaters of the train of conflicts in the 18th century culminating in the Seven Years' War, suffered heavy losses. In that conflict alone, the Cherokee are believed to have lost around 5,000 individuals, quote, including half of their warriors. Meanwhile, should they find themselves on the losing side, Native nations had to be concerned about retribution delivered by the winning faction. Even those indigenous peoples who had more cordial relations with the settlers faced pressures to move off of land coveted by the colonists and head further west. Nearly all of South Carolina had been acquired through treaties by 1777, while the last portion of modern-day Virginia, along with a good portion of Kentucky, was opened through the Treaty of Sycamore Shoals in 1775. 
Attempts made by the British government to halt the westward expansion of the colonists on the eastern seaboard, along with being ineffective as settlement continued apace west of the Appalachian Mountains, fed into other animosities and grievances that would ultimately result in the American Revolution. Native nations would take sides in that conflict as well, and the Haudenosaunee, who are also referred to as the Iroquois, would actually take separate sides, with five of the six nations of the Confederacy siding with the British, while the Oneida joined with the rebels. The former colonists would send forces to attack the indigenous people who supported the British, with rangers sent into their territory, given such orders as those that North Carolina gave to a force in 1780 to, quote, reduce them to obedience. The Pennsylvania State Assembly at one point, quote, authorized a bounty on Seneca scalps without regard to sex or age. Villages were looted and burned to the ground, crops were destroyed, and indigenous peoples, including non-combatants, were driven from their homes to seek refuge elsewhere. The war was devastating on native communities, but even with the coming of peace between the British and the Americans, there would prove to be little peace for some indigenous nations. As noted by historian Colin Calloway in this lengthy excerpt from his book, The Indian World of George Washington, The First President, The First Americans, and The Birth of the Nation, quote, The federal government of the new nation first embarked on a program of national expansion in the lands north and west of the Ohio River. The region became a testing ground for a new republic to build a new kind of empire. Indian land played a crucial role in constructing the American nation-state, providing a source of revenue and room for growth. It also contributed to the formation of a shared national identity. Before the Revolution, the fears and realities of Indian warfare contributed to the development of a white racial consciousness, in which disparate groups of European colonists shared pervasive anti-Indian sentiments. During the Revolution, the fears and realities of Indian warfare contributed to the development of an American racial consciousness. After the Revolution, Westward expansion contributed to the development of a white American consciousness. As Calloway also notes, quote, American political leaders were not unanimous in their support for territorial expansion. Some feared that contests for Indian land might increase divisions and exacerbate centrifugal tendencies, and some anti-federalists warned that expansion would dismember the fragile nation. Indeed, in the Washington series, we discussed numerous instances where Western settlers considered leaving the Union, and how foreign powers at times would support and exploit those sentiments for their own gain, as a weak nation or nations in Eastern North America would be to their advantage. Upon Washington assuming the presidency, however, he made clear that, while he was a strong proponent for westward expansion, he also recognized that Native nations had a greater degree of sovereignty than had been recognized by the government under the Articles of Confederation. President Washington also intended to develop a national policy for what was dubbed quote-unquote Indian Affairs, whereas there had previously been confusion in who exactly would be directing negotiations with indigenous peoples, the federal government or respective state governments. However, though Washington intended to focus on negotiation rather than force to acquire new lands for settlement, this did not mean that the negotiations were always ethically sound. Just prior to the government under the Constitution taking effect, 
Arthur St. Clair, who you may recall was the longtime governor of the Northwest Territory, concluded two treaties at Fort Harmer in January 1789. But in a reflection of common negotiation practices, though there was limited indigenous representation in attendance, the Americans treated it as a legitimate treaty reaffirming previously disputed land cessions and would enforce the terms of the treaty with military might if necessary. For the first major treaty between the Washington administration and an indigenous nation, the president sent an emissary to an indigenous leader as eager for a treaty as himself, the Muskogee leader, Alexander McGillivray. We discussed this treaty briefly in episode 1.24, but I'd like to take a bit of a closer look at it, as well as the leader on the other side of the negotiating table from the administration. McGillivray was the son of a Scottish trader and a French Muskogee woman, and Though he, as described by Calloway, quote, had no reputation as a warrior, his mental abilities, political savvy, and connections outweighed his military limitations. Indeed, McGillivray was, quote, physically frail and chronically ill, afflicted with rheumatism, migraine headaches, alcoholism, and syphilis. Despite this, and the fact that he lived a much different lifestyle than most Muskogee, as, quote, he accumulated personal wealth and property, owned slaves, managed a large plantation at Little Tallahassee on the banks of the Coosa River, and functioned effectively in the Atlantic market economy, McGillivray was still a prominent leader in the Muskogee society and was often employed as a go-between to negotiate with people of European origin. First the British, then, after the Revolution, the Spanish and the Americans. That being said, the nature of Muskogee society was that McGillivray could not speak for all Muskogee Micos, or leaders. This did not stop him when talking with the Europeans to put himself forward, quote, as a national leader. And indeed, these negotiations often personally benefited McGillivray. It did, however, take McGillivray a while to warm up to the idea of negotiating with representatives of the United States, as he felt that the efforts made by representatives of the government under the Articles of Confederation were too little, too late. McGillivray said to the Spanish governor of Louisiana in 1788 that, quote, he did not trust the Americans, who are a set of crafty, cunning Republicans, who will endeavor to avail themselves of every circumstance in which I cannot speak or act with decision. Washington's inauguration as the first president, however, changed matters. With much more authority to negotiate and intercede in disputes like those between native nations in the Southeast and the state of Georgia, President Washington seemed, in McGillivray's mind, a much more attractive negotiating partner than had anyone under the previous Confederation government. Likewise, Washington realized that indigenous peoples in the South presented a much more formidable challenge than did those in the North, both numerically and logistically. Thus, he sent as negotiators General Benjamin Lincoln, who had served under him during the Revolution, the last president of the Confederation Congress, Cyrus Griffin of Virginia, and his former aide-de-camp and personal secretary, David Humphreys. By choosing negotiators with whom he was well acquainted, it was clear that Washington saw this peace mission as being, as the president himself noted, quote, an object of high national importance. The first round of negotiations in the latter half of 1789 ended without a treaty, but the Muskogee sent a gift to Washington, quote, a white eagle tail fan as a symbol of peace. Realizing that there was still an opportunity, 
especially in light of the Georgia State Legislature's attempt in December 1789 to authorize more land sales in the Yazoo River region. Washington sent an emissary to McGillivray to invite him and other Muskogee leaders, quote, to repair to the seat of the general government, i.e. New York City. Rather than act entirely through intermediaries, Washington had decided that the face-to-face approach may work better. McGillivray organized a delegation which traveled overland and arrived in New York City on July 21, 1790. This would end up being the first negotiations between indigenous peoples and the United States held in non-indigenous lands, and thus it attracted much attention. Even before their arrival in the capital, McGillivray and his delegation were met by crowds along their journey and were treated as honored guests by leaders along the way, with Virginia Governor Beverly Randolph even hosting a dinner in their honor. Unfortunately, the president was still recovering from a bout of pneumonia, so he left most of the official duties to Secretary of War Henry Knox, who, along with New York Governor George Clinton, hosted a dinner for the delegation at the city tavern upon their arrival. While the negotiations were ongoing, the foreign representatives in New York City were doing all they could to monitor the progress that was being made as closer ties between the U.S. and the indigenous peoples could potentially impact their position in North America. Over the course of three weeks, the indigenous delegation, quote, attended endless meetings, informal conferences, and dinners, and they saw the sights. The main burden of negotiation, either by his deliberate choice or by the nature of his familiarity with the culture and language of those on the other side of the table, was assumed by McGillivray, and he would personally benefit from the proceedings. In addition to an agreement that, quote, the Creeks would agree to cede to Georgia the lands east of the Oconee River, hand over all captives, and acknowledge the sovereignty of the United States, and in return the United States would give back the lands south of the Altamaha River and the federal government would recognize the invalid nature of various treaties that the Georgia state government had previously entered into, McGillivray himself would be established under secret provisions as the head of a trade monopoly with the power to decide which merchants would be allowed to trade in Muskogee territory, and with a guarantee of, quote, duty-free passage of Creek trade goods through American ports, in the event that the tribe's regular channels of trade became obstructed. In addition to that, McGillivray was also commissioned as a brigadier general to be paid an annual salary of $1,200. Though this first treaty with indigenous peoples made by the constitutional government was presented by Washington as a new way forward, which would be, quote, productive of present peace and prosperity to our southern frontier, and in its consequences be the means of firmly attaching the Creeks and the neighboring tribes to the interests of the United States. So much about it was part of a familiar pattern of bribery in terms of the personal benefits for McGillivray and deceit in the fact that McGillivray and the American negotiators mostly conversed in English, leaving out the other Muskogee delegates who did not speak the language. Moreover, other Muskogee settlements that were not represented at the conference and various state officials in Georgia rejected the validity of the treaty. And even McGillivray, despite how he profited from the treaty, did not develop a quote-unquote firm attachment to the United States, as in April 1791, he accepted, quote, an annuity of $2,000 from the Spanish government. Now, I feel I should note that 
Given the state of the situation faced by Native peoples, it is understandable why, in many instances, Indigenous individuals, as a matter of survival, would agree to accept personal compensation for facilitating treaties with the United States. And indeed, this is and will prove to be, in our narrative, an established historical pattern. On the American side, those who supported negotiating treaties with Native nations saw business deals, legal deals under the terms dictated by the Constitution, as being an ethical and moral approach. With hindsight and with a greater understanding of the various perspectives at play, though, the Americans not only had an advantage at the negotiating table, but more often than not, worked to assure themselves of that advantage to the detriment of indigenous peoples. From all of my research and knowledge, there seems to have been no attempt at equity or even true equality on the part of the representatives of the U.S. government in negotiations with Native nations in the early republic. There was a curiosity and a certain level of respect, but there is little indication that those across from indigenous peoples at the negotiations of the time saw those with whom they were talking as true equals. I wish that it was otherwise, and I'll gladly accept any grains of salt you want to throw my way, but I don't see any other two cents about it. Before we finish out this episode by briefly introducing some of the peoples living in the lands of the Louisiana Purchase in 1803, I did want to take a few moments to discuss someone who thus far has not been mentioned, but who was and will remain for some time a leading figure in diplomatic efforts with indigenous nations in the Old Southwest, what we now know of as the American Southeast. Benjamin Hawkins was originally from North Carolina and had represented that state in both the Confederation Congress and the U.S. Senate, the latter service being from 1789 to 1795. Prior to his career in the Senate, Hawkins had served as a treaty commissioner in the lands to the Southwest in the mid to late 1780s and had quickly developed an interest in the languages of the Native peoples, an interest that he shared in a correspondence with Jefferson. From these early diplomatic endeavors, Hawkins earned a good reputation and even the respect of Washington, who wrote of him to the Marquis de Lafayette in 1788, referring to Hawkins as, quote, that ingenious gentleman. As those of you who listened to the Washington series may remember, Washington was not one to dispense compliments about just anyone. Historian Florette Henri described Hawkins as, quote, an ingenious gentleman who lived in a period of ingenious gentlemen. Hawkins was, in accomplishments, one of the smaller of this generation of giants, although he had greatness. Perhaps his trouble lay in his being too old for a young time. Too old not in years, but in philosophy. He was an 18th century man of unbending logic and justice, whose culminating work came in the more pragmatic, therefore more flexible, 19th century, when the wish easily fathered the thought. Henri, in her book about Hawkins' career as the General Superintendent of Indian Affairs, a position that Washington would appoint him to in 1796, wrote that, quote, It is ironic that Hawkins should have been the shepherd to lead the southern Indians toward barren new pastures, because to an unusual degree he respected and liked the Indians, and guarded their welfare as sternly as that of white men. He was also, however, an informed and dedicated patriot fully cognizant of the need of his nation eventually to contain the Indians and absorb their enormous hunting grounds. How to do justice to the Indians and yet serve his government was Hawkins's constant dilemma, 
Most agents sent by the federal government in the 19th century to deal with indigenous peoples were not nearly so conflicted. But even Hawkins would ultimately look out for the interests of the United States over any other. Hawkins's approach did help him to, quote, build a somewhat reluctant following among the older chiefs. But the young Indians vehemently rejected his interference in their traditional life, and Indian nationalism increased proportionately to white intrusion on Indian land and culture. I imagine that we'll be talking more about Hawkins and his work in future episodes, so it seemed like a good time to mention that he was there, living and working in this region at the time of the Louisiana Purchase. Speaking of, Though we know that there were people of French, Spanish, and British origin in and around New Orleans at the time, what of the native peoples inhabiting the rest of the lands that were being brought into the United States without any input or consent of those peoples? The Plains were a much different area than that of what, prior to 1803, constituted the United States. As described by Anton Truer, quote, The land has always shaped people more than people shape the land. Nowhere was this more evident than in the Great Plains, a vast expanse from northern Saskatchewan to the tip of Texas, and from the Rocky Mountains to the Mississippi River. The plains became habitable after the last ice age when a rapid explosion in animal and bird populations brought humans to the plains from all over North America. Early tribal people from the Siouan, Catoan, Algonquian, and Uto-Aztecan language families converged on the plains, eager to reap the bounty of the land and build their families and communities. This sometimes harsh landscape would, through the large herds of buffalo that roamed the territory, support, quote, countless thousands of tribal people, with the animals providing, quote, food, shelter, clothing, writing material for documented oral histories, and spiritual inspiration. Unbeknownst to all of them, signatures on a piece of paper in Paris would impact not only their lives, but those of future generations yet to be born. From here on out, these peoples are a part of our narrative, and I can tell you that there are many trails of tears ahead. For now, though, let us draw this episode to a close. Thanks so much again, Sean, for providing the intro quote for this episode. Special thanks also to the itinerant band for allowing us the use of clips from Jefferson and Liberty for the intro and outro music for this episode. To find a link to the websites for the American History Podcast and the itinerant band, as well as to see sources used for this episode, or to find past episodes of this podcast, head over to the website at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. I've got lots of great additional resources linked there, as well as information on how to subscribe on your favorite podcast venue of choice. Check out my daily content on social media by following me on Facebook at Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, or on Instagram at Presidencies Podcast, all one word. You can send questions or comments through social media as well, or via email at Presidencies Podcast, again, all one word, at gmail.com. If you like this podcast, I hope you'll consider leaving a rating and review on either Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. That helps potential new listeners to know why they should check out Presidencies. Finally, I just wanted to thank all of you for listening and for all the support everyone's provided on this journey. It really means a great deal to me. Until next time, stay safe, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. (music) 
History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Thank you.